Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. In this talk, Fight Back editor Rob Lyon discusses how the far right hides behind the claim of free speech. While this event was held in 2018, in the context of Fightback's campaign against the Doug Ford government's attempt to ban protests on campus, the issue of how to deal with the far right and how to defend the freedoms of the working class and oppressed remains just as relevant today. Uh, people should be aware as well that this is um, part of a broader campaign we're organizing on various campuses against the Doug Ford protest law, which is supposed to come in, uh, I think, formally some point next year. Um, and one, one thing that we've noticed really since um, Charlottesville, I've been developing for a longer time, but we've really noticed it since Charlottesville last year, is that the right, the, the far right and the fascist the alt right, whatever you want to call them, but they, they've been making a lot of noise, and they've been making a lot of noise lately. Um, we've had Faith Holy's campaign here, municipal campaign in the elections here. We've had the Proud Boys a little over the last couple of weeks beating the crap out of people all across the continent of the United States. And uh, of course, we've had other conflicts and meetings and, and semi riots and so on going on. Um, and it's important to, 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 to understand that, that, that they've been trying, that the far right, the fascists, have been trying to position themselves as the champions of free speech. And they've been doing this for quite some time. And I mean historically, going back to the 1920s and the 1930s. So all these arguments and all these things that are happening right now aren't particularly unique, in fact. They're quite, they're quite, old, quite old arguments, uh, to be honest. Um, and really, it's, quite, it's more than ironic. I don't even know what the proper version <laughs> for it is. Uh, it's quite offensive, really, that, that they're the ones taking up this, this charge. Because, of course, when you look historically, and when you look at the things that they say and do, it's very clear what their end goal is. And that is to take away everybody else's rights, uh, democratic rights to free speech, to assembly, to strike, uh, whatever it may be. And, and it's important that we understand that historically that is the role of the far right, that is the role of fascism, is, is to smash the left, is to smash the trade unions, to smash the workers' organizations, and in the end ensure the complete free reign of, of capitalism. And then obviously this means that that fascism and violence go, go, go hand in hand. And they aren't actually all that particularly concerned about other people's rights to, to free speech or, or what have you. Um, and, and as I mentioned, this is becoming all the more relevant because of this, this law or this act or whatever it is that Doug Ford wants to pass, which is effectively an attack on the left, it's an attack on students, it's an attack on the unions, and it's basically trying to take away our right to protest and our right to voice our opinion and our voice to, to protest and counter the, the far right on, on university campuses. Um, and as I mentioned, this, this isn't kind of the first go around. Um, there's an example from the, 19, from the 1930s in the United States. In February 1939, just before the World, World War II started, the American Nazi Party held a big rally in Madison Square Garden in, in New York City. And it's estimated there was around 25 to, to 35,000 Nazis coming to, this, coming to this rally or whatever. And so obviously when you look at Charlottesville, I think there was, I don't know if that's made, there was a thousand or two thousand 
Fox was there or whatever. That's scary enough. But imagine 35,000 of them all congregating in Madison Square Garden in, in New York City. And obviously, this provoked a lot of people. People are obviously concerned when you have 35,000 fascists congregated in one place. It's a dangerous situation. So a lot of workers, a lot of unionists, a lot of anarchists, a lot of communists, a lot of Trotskyists, a lot of people got together to come in and to, to, try, to try to protest them, basically. Um, some also tried to stop them from having their meeting. Um, but what was the major concern of sort of the, the, the establishment politicians, the liberals, the Democrats, and, and, and the police, and so on? Their major concern was protecting the Nazis' free right, the right to, free, to free speech, basically. And the, the mayor at the time, LaGuardia, whose name is on the earth, he's famous airport in New York, that was his biggest concern. And in fact, he committed massive police forces to defending the Nazis. And of course, predictably, the police attacked the, the left-wingers and the communists outside the Madison Square Garden. So all, all this concern about free, free speech and democratic rights, nobody was particularly concerned about the rights of, of the workers and the trade unions outside to demonstrate or, or express, express their, their opinion. It's also interesting that the American Civil Liberties Union said the exact same things about this Nazi congregation in the 1930s as they did recently in Charlottesville, right? The American Civil Liberties Union spent a lot of time trying to defend the far right and the fascists and trying to defend their right to their right to free speech. Um, anyway, it's just an interesting example. You can read all about it online. There's lots of information about it online. You should read about it because it's, in fact, quite remarkably similar to what's, what's happening uh, today at various, at various points in time. Um, it's also true when you look historically at what happened where fascism actually came to power in, in Europe in the, 19, well, the 1920s and the 1930s first in Italy, then in Germany, and then, then finally in Spain. You saw the exact, all the same arguments, all the same things happening, that, that, that the fascists were on the right, they're attacking people, they're intimidating people, and, and the left tries to respond, and the, the sort of liberal establishment, the establishment politicians, the state, the police come in and actually defend the fascists, and actually attack the trade unions, attack the left. And in fact, this, this whole conflict ended up quite badly for, for workers and people in Italy and Germany and Spain, where the fascists were eventually able to come to power, and then completely removed the democratic rights of, 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 of everybody. And in fact, they, they, they used these sort of arguments of the liberals and so on to gain a foothold and then to completely smash uh, the trade unions and, and democratic rights for, for everybody. Um, and so what this really kind of shows us that, is that rights and freedoms are really not something absolute. They're not something that just kind of falls out of the sky one day and they exist absolutely for all people for all time. They don't exist outside of time and space, they don't exist outside of history. They evolve historically as, as, historic, as, as society evolves. And so really what they are is they actually reflect the struggle and they actually in a lot of ways kind of give you a gauge of the various, uh, the strength of the various classes and the various groups of people um, in, in, in society. So for example, if you take the example of a strike, just a, a, basic, a basic strike in a workplace, um, which is a democratic right, in most countries, Western countries at the moment. Um, so of course, the workers have the right to call a strike, to call a strike, to go on strike. Um, but then, what you often see in most strikes is you see scabs. You see people who, who, who basically assert their right to work, basically, their right to not go on a strike, which is fine, that's their right. The workers have the right to go on strike. So you have two rights, two sets of rights that are actually now in conflict with one another. And quite often what you see is the state will come in, either through you know, parliament or through laws, some sort of legislation, or the police. They will actually come and defend the rights of the scabs to go to work, which effectively removes the rights of the workers to go on strike. 
And so that's kind of what, what you see in this whole process of this struggle over rights to free speech, democratic rights, the right to vote, and all these kinds of things, is that there's an inherent conflict there that is basically one set of people's rights against the other people's set of rights. And, and when you look at a situation like a business where there's a strike going on, that basically when you're saying that, 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 that the staffs have the right to go to work, you're saying that the workers don't have the right to strike. They don't have the right to try to get a better rate uh, working conditions or a better wage or, or anything like that. <clears throat> and essentially what they're also saying, the government is also saying, is that the boss has the right to starve out the workers, in fact, and has the right to, to, to take away the rights of the striking workers. <clears throat> And it, it also really shows that when you look at capitalist society, that there is really no set of laws, or, or there, there is no set of laws, or there's no sort of parliamentary procedure to sort of reconcile this conflict, that, that the conflict is actually resolved in struggle. That if, if the workers win their strike, for example, that then they've sort of asserted their right to strike, and that's victorious for the time being. But if the workers lose that strike, but the scabs give the upper hand, and the government basically legislates the workers back to work, or uses the police to smash the picket lines, then again, you can see that the, the rights of the bosses and, and, and the scabs are basically winning or at least dominant over the rights of the, of the striking workers. And so basically, it is kind of an either-or situation. When it comes to a strike, there's the rights of the scabs or the rights of the workers on strike. You can't really reconcile that, and that isn't going to be reconciled through any sort of law or any sort of parliamentary, any sort of parliamentary action. And this is really, this is really what it's all about. Is it comes down to struggle. It comes down to the class struggle, and, and that's how these things are ultimately determined. And when you look historically at our rights to, to assembly, rights to free speech, right to strike, the right to vote, is all of these things were actually won in struggle, largely by workers, um, but also of course many other social and, and, and community groups. <clears throat> and, and in terms of this whole question of, of the far right or the alt-right, whatever, and this question of, of uh, of free speech is that it's not really about free speech, in my opinion, it's, it's more of a red herring, actually, and it really distracts from what's actually happening. Um, and they use it as an excuse, really, so that they can get a platform and then really just present their, their, their hateful ideas or their racist ideas or, or really their stupid ideas. Um, because, of course, it's a, it is quite difficult in today's society to stand up and really just to be a racist, to go out to the United immigrants or, or I hate Jews or I hate whatever group of people that they want to go after that week. Most people don't want to listen to that, and most people are just going to shut you down and tell you to shut up, or they're just going to walk away and ignore you. But if you turn around and make it into an issue of rights and say, well, I should have the right to get up and say that I hate immigrants, or I have the right to get up and say that I hate so-and-so or whatever group, then you can generate a bit of sympathy, first of all, because you're talking about rights to free speech, which most people are concerned about. And, and, and you can get a bit of a platform to get these ideas across. And that's, that's really kind of what the tactic is, because most people aren't going to listen. But if they kind of change the tune a little bit, they can maybe get a bit of a, they can get a, bit of, a, bit of a hearing. Um, and as I said, freedom, freedom of speech is, is, is not an absolute thing. First of all, there's already limitations on it under the Canadian Constitution, or in the United States, for example, under the Constitution. There are some things that you've always just not really been allowed to say. Or if you look at Britain, for example, the right to free speech is actually not in the Constitution. It's just a convention. It's just it's something that everybody accepts. Um, and in fact, in the old days, there, there's a place in London called High Park. And there's a thing there on Sunday called Speaker's Corner. And it's, it's a long-standing tradition that goes back to the 19th century that when you speak, you actually get up on a soapbox or some sort of a, some sort of a platform. 
And that's because most people were in Speaker's Corner speaking against the crown. Well, it was an, it was an indictable offense until you know, the 20th century to speak against the crown on British soil. So the way they kind of got around it was to stand on a box, because they're not standing on, on British soil, right? But anyway, it's just to show that these things don't, don't just sort of uh, exist outside of, uh, outside of time and space. But they really, what these democratic rights are, are really relations between people. And the way you can kind of see that is if, let's say you're at like a, a house party or, or something, and, and most of the people there are going to be, whatever, let's say progressives, lefties, liberals of some kind. Most people there are not racist, let's say. And then all of a sudden, somebody at the party goes off, and they go off on some sort of a racist rant or whatever, right? Of course, they have a right to free speech. They can say whatever they like. But most of the people at that house party also have a right not to hear that shit. And so they can eventually decide, well, you got to go. You're not welcome here. You, you have to leave. Um, so in that case, if, again, it's not really this absolute thing, I have the right to free speech. And it's like, well, yeah, but the people around have a right not to listen to that. So again, there's an inherent conflict here. And this, this conflict isn't going to be resolved. In, in any other way other than through the conflict itself, through, through the struggle it's, it, itself. But of course, society isn't just a bunch of people who all get along in a house. It's not a, it's not a bunch of people in a house that all have similar ideas with one racist running around. You've got millions of people in society, all with different opinions. You've got different classes and different groups. And so the way this all kind of plays out socially is sort of in an aggregate way, that we have our rights and, and our various rights, rights to vote, free speech, all these things. And they change over time as a result of the struggle between these different, these different forces. And in fact, this goes all the way back to the, to the Magna Carta. The very first sort of modern democratic rights were, were won in, in, in the 13th century. But again, nobody just gave these rights away. You know, the, the, the crown didn't give away rights to heaviest corpus because they were feeling nice that day. It was because there was a major movement going on amongst some of the, the, the lower nobles and, and the developing bourgeoisie that actually fought for these rights, actually killed people to get these get these rights. Um, and, and it's the same in, in modern society, when you look at basically modern, um, modern, modern capitalist society, that most of the rights that we enjoy today, most of the things that are, that are enshrined in the Constitution, were actually, again, one in struggle, mostly by workers, right to strike, right to free assembly, right to free speech. All of these things were largely won out of, out, out, out of strikes, actually, to be honest. And then when you look at the broader thing, you look at universal suffrage, or you look at civil rights in the United States, or you look at all these other things that have happened in the last hundred years, uh, from which we get our democratic societies. But again, these things involve large, large groups of people, masses of people coming from different backgrounds. But again, the working class did play a fundamental role, even in, in, in securing universal suffrage and, and, and civil rights in the, in the United States. And going back to the dawn of capitalist society, of course, these rights haven't existed for all time, and, and, and neither has capitalism. And when capitalism first came into being, um, you know, it came into being at different times in different countries, but nowhere do you see broad democratic rights with the birth of capitalism. For example, after the, the American War of Independence, the American Revolution, the first election that took place under the new constitution, it's estimated that somewhere between only 2 and 6% of the population had the right to vote. And this was essentially white men of property. And that's how it was in Britain when capitalism first came around. That's how it was after the French Revolution. That's how it was in Canada after Confederation. That voting rights were extremely restrictive, and it was all based on, 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 on property. And eventually, the franchise was won by people without property, us, most of the people in this room, I'm assuming, was through, again, through struggle, through demanding those rights, through civil disobedience, through strikes, and, and, and so on, conflicts with the police, so on and so forth. Um, 
So really, these things are inherently political. It is inherently a political struggle when you're fighting for your rights, and, and it is inherently a part of, 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 of the class struggle, struggles between classes. The, the bosses, the capitalists, democracy is very useful for them and has been very useful for them historically in sorting out their own problems, but they never necessarily really wanted all the workers and the poor people to have, to have, to have freedom and to have rights. Right? And, and we had to, to fight and, and to win them. Although having said that, the cheapest and the most effective way for the capitalists to rule society is actually a democratic society. They don't require a massive police state, a massive military apparatus to maintain control of the of, of the working class and the, and, and, and the poor people. So, so in the current context, or in, historically in the 20th century, what, what does fascism what represent? What do the far right uh, represent? Well, they really are anti-democratic forces. You can see that historically. Um, that they were forces in the class struggle that were used to completely annihilate the, the, the organizations of the working class and to terrorize oppressed populations. Um, Obviously, the, the big one being, obviously, if you look at the situation of Jews in Europe or something like that in, in the 1930s. And, and that was never hidden by the fascists. That was never anything that the Nazis ever hid, either. They were very clear and very open about what they wanted to achieve and eventually went about and, and, and more or less uh, did it for, for the decade of the 1930s. And so really, when it comes to this conflict or to this struggle, and for example, a fascist meeting gets canceled, or, or, or maybe there's some sort of a conflict at a, at a university and the police intervene and everybody's dispersed or, or whatever happens. But when the fascists are shut down, when they're actually confronted, you're actually defending democratic rights. You're, first of all, defending your own democratic rights to, to free speech, to assembly, and everything else. But you're also defending those communities that are particularly targeted by the fascists as well, some of which are very, very vulnerable or can be very vulnerable to, to attack from, from the far right. And as we've seen, just about everywhere the fascists go, violence follows. They go hand in hand. It's, 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 it's actually the only way that they can achieve their aims is through violence, and usually through mass terror and violence. For example, even Faith Goldie, when you look at the program she had for the election, talking about cleaning all the immigrant centers and stuff like that, what involves arresting and, and clearing out thousands and thousands of people? That can only be done through violent police action. People are only going to get their heads clubbed in if she becomes the mayor. That's the only way that can be achieved, in fact. <clears throat> And, and you, the other thing that you see quite often, too, is that the, the political establishment, uh, small L liberals and small T conservatives, but also their, their, their political party counterparts, usually then turn uh, and actually defend the fascists, defend the far right, and actually attack the, the left, or they attack the trade unions, or they attack the, 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 the labor parties and the socialist parties. And, and that's, again, what, what Doug Ford is basically doing, that he's kind of using political power, he's using parliaments, um, the provincial legislature, whatever you want to say, he's using that to actually defend the far right, and he's using it against us, against the left, against students, and against workers. And it should be fairly obvious why. That's because at the end of the day, what the fascists are doing is they are protecting ultimately the interests of capitalism. They're protecting the interests of the bosses. Well, the liberals and the conservatives share that same class interest, so they will share then the same sympathies. Um, it, it really shouldn't come as as, as much of a as much of a surprise when they do that. So in terms of how to fight the, how to fight the far right, <laughs> I wouldn't pretend to tell you how to fight. Uh, how to fight the far right? <laughs> well, we shouldn't forget what Hitler himself said, right? When he said, uh, he said, 
Only one thing could have broken our movement. If our adversary had understood his principle and from the first day had smashed with extreme brutality the nucleus of our movement. So the fascists themselves are actually quite aware of how they themselves can be defeated. And Hitler was very much aware of how, how the Nazi movement could have been, how, how, how it could have been defeated. But of course, it's very easy to say, oh, you need to smash the fascists. Or, or quite often, people like to, to quote Trotsky when he said, well, the best way to deal with the fascists is to kindly introduce their face to the pavement. Of course, that's all fine and well. But how do you actually do that? You, you have to put that sort of a position into the context, into the context of, of today and, and where we are today. And, and when you look at the situation today, you can see that class consciousness in general has been thrown very, very, very far back. There isn't necessarily a mass movement of, of big brutal trade unionists that we can rely on to defend us from the fascists or to go after the fascists. The, the whole point is that we need to build that mass movement of, of workers and students who can actually then resist the fascists uh, in, in whatever means uh, is necessary. And there's a lot of dangers in fighting the fascists. Obviously, there's physical dangers and other dangers, but, but there's, there's more general dangers. When you, when you look at Italy and you look at Germany and Spain, to, to, Spain's a little bit of a different case because it was a national civil war that eventually erupted over the question. But in Italy and Germany, you see the biggest failure was the, the mass organizations of the working class, the socialist parties, the communist parties, and the trade unions, were too concerned with their own sectarian infighting to get together and present a mass united front against the fascists. So eventually, in Italy, it was very clear that the, the, the fascists were able to just isolate each group one by one, focus on them, and then annihilate them. And then they eventually came to power with the March on Rome. It was very, very similar in, in Germany as well. The Socialist Party, the, S, uh, the SPD, and the Communist Party were too busy fighting themselves to actually fight the fascists. Um, they eventually, they eventually got, got smashed, obviously. Um, like I said, Spain's a little bit of a different question, but there's actually still the same problem, that, that all the various left groups and the trade unions were, again, were too busy fighting each other to actually focus on, 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 on the common, on the common uh, enemy. And in fact, that's where Antifa comes from. Antifa comes out of Italy and out of Germany, really actually out of the failure of a mass united front against, against the fascists or, or, or the Nazis. Um, in, in Italy, in fact, um, there was, uh, eventually there was a large Antifa movement that, that erupted and it was largely sort of ultra-lefts and anarchists, non-party workers, stuff like that. And, and the socialists and the communists wouldn't work with them because they said, oh, they're sectarian, they're too left-wing, blah, 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 blah. And, and Lenin actually like, sent off some nasty letters to the leaders of the socialists and the communist parties and said, well, look, I may agree with your, your criticisms of the political program of some of these people, but they're right in terms of how to fight the fascists. What the hell are you doing? You need to get in there and help them, right? And it was the same thing, Trotsky talked about this all the time with, with the Nazis in Germany, that the most important thing was that everybody get together in a big united front and, and, and take, it to, take it to the Nazis. Uh, there's, there's, a good, there's a good example of how to beat the Nazis or how to beat the fascists coming, uh, comes out of Britain in the 1930s. There was a big event called the Battle of Cable Street. And uh, the fascists were fairly strong in Britain. There was probably a, a, a moderate danger of them coming to power. Uh, they had a, I don't know, a fairly large movement couldn't say how many members exactly, but the, uh, they, they planned in 1936 to march down Cable Street, which was a, a working class in a Jewish neighborhood in East London. I think they had about 40,000 40, members or something who were going to march, march through this neighborhood. It was a real provocation. But all, all the communists and the anarchist groups and the trade unions and the Labour Party did manage to put their differences aside for a while, and they went and blocked off Cable Street. I think there were 250,000, 300,000 people there. And they stopped the Nazi march, in fact. Um, and there was a big melee happened, the police got involved in the big fight with the fascists and everything. But they were stopped. And the same thing happened again in the, in the 50s, not long after the Second World War. Uh, there was again a big fascist movement in Britain. 
And a similar thing happened at, uh, at Trafalgar Square, where a mass movement of workers was able to stop, stop the fascists uh, in their tracks. And, and we've even seen that recently. Uh, Charlottesville was quite a, was a, kind of a horrifying thing, to be perfectly honest. I think, again, there was a, a thousand or two thousand Nazis, and it's estimated that the, the, the left-wing opponents, the counter-protesters, were about twice as big. But they're, they're all armed to the teeth. So really, the people who were there at Charlottesville are extraordinarily brave. And, and, they, and they got into the middle of a war zone, basically. Um, and someone died. But then it was, it was the week later, or two weeks later, I think it was the very next weekend in Boston, there was some other far-right rally was planned or whatever. And the big call-out went out to, to, you know, to oppose them, to shut them down. And you saw 50,000 people plus come out onto the streets of Boston and completely dwarfed this, this fascist rally in the park. And that completely shut the fascists down. They, they ran home scared, actually, with police protection, of, of course. And that same weekend, we saw a similar thing in Vancouver, where fewer people, I think there was estimated 10 to 15,000 people came out to oppose a, a far-right rally. And that, again, completely, completely dwarfed the, the far-right and shut them down. Um, just this past week, or maybe it was two weeks ago in Berlin as well, there was a big, uh, a big Nazi rally. Can't have Nazis in Germany, a big fascist rally in, in, in Germany. I think there was a couple thousand fascists who were going to be in Berlin. Well, 200,000 people came out onto the streets and marched. I think the march was five kilometers long throughout Berlin. Berlin's actually not that big. Um, and, and again, that completely dwarfed the fascists and then completely shut them down. So again, we can kind of see historically, but also in, in more modern times, that the, that the best, most secure way to shut them down and to stop them is mass movement. And, and that completely dwarfs them. Um, but again, as I mentioned, there are dangers. There are dangers of, of sectarian infighting, the failure of groups to come together and form a united front to defend each other. And that does leave people vulnerable. It leaves groups vulnerable, and it, and, and it leaves, in fact, the entire movement in general vulnerable. If we're all asleep at the wheel, all of a sudden one day you wake up and there's a big mass fascist movement running around beating everybody up. Uh, we, need to be, we need to be a little bit more on top of things and, and be aware that things could actually develop that way. And it depends on how we respond in the struggle, how, how we how we oppose them. And so really, at the moment, that's the key, that's the key thing. There's really no moral objection to introducing the face of a fascist to the pavement. That's not really, that's not really a problem morally. But the problem is at the moment, we don't necessarily have the forces to go and do that very cleanly. Um, and and, and people, could get, people could get very hurt. So the key task right now is to involve as many people as we can, as many workers and youth in a mass united movement to stop them. That's, that's the key and that's what we have to build uh, right now. And in doing that, we'll be fighting to, first of all, protect our own rights, but then hopefully also to extend our own rights and, and to fight for actual genuine equality, genuine freedom, and of course, socialism. I'll leave it there. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, 
check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.